Welcome to the OK School Me podcast. I'm Dr. Mako Fitzward, Director of the Social Transformation Lab at Arizona State University. I'm excited to dive into this episode with conversations and perspectives on the role of art in transforming the way we think, how we move, and the overall lens through which we perceive the world around us. Art is defined by Webster's Dictionary as the conscious use of skill and creative imagination, especially in the production of aesthetic objects. It was playwright Lorraine Hansberry who essentialized art as being mainly social, going on to say that it is both an agitator and preparator for the rest. Poet Maya Angelou claimed its function was ultimately to show us that we are all more alike than unalike. We go in on what it means to celebrate new art innovations without losing sight of traditional and indigenous origins and how we may celebrate traditions in ways that uplift groundbreaking new techniques. I'm so thrilled to be in conversation with two of my phenomenal colleagues, Dr. Matthew Sandoval, who's an associate teaching professor in Barathe Honors College at ASU, and Dr. Selena Osuna, who recently transitioned from her role as the lab's postdoctoral scholar to assistant professor of environmental humanities at the University of Texas at El Paso. They will school us on the transformative nature of art and how artists change minds, hearts, and consciousness, something we truly need in these trying times. We end the episode with Kyle McKinney offering the learning moment, so let's begin our transformation for today and get this lesson started. Welcome. Welcome, welcome. Hello. Hello. I'm so excited to be in conversation with the two of you. I think that your work really speaks to today. I keep saying today because it's not today. It's actually the episode. So (laughs) your work speaks to the topic of the episode, Art as Transformative. So let's first get into who you are and then we'll get into your work, right? Um, But in getting into who you are, Um, And I know that often I've asked this question of many artists and they usually cringe when I ask this question. (laughs) Um, uh, But I know that the two of you are artists, you're scholars, but you're also artists. So how do you maintain your artistic or creative practice alongside your research and the academic work that you do? What are some of the challenges that you have faced in sort of centering the arts in your research at this large public university? Oh, you just want to start big. Huh? You just want to start big. You, you want to take that one? <laughs> I mean, I can try and take on the, yeah, the bigness of that question. I think for me, I've only recently started to integrate my identity as artist and scholar together in academic spaces. And part of that is through a lot of trial and error. So the challenges, I mean, time, when you have writing projects, um, if you're teaching, it takes up a lot of time. And so that doesn't always leave a lot of time left for your creative, your otherwise creative outlets. So I think for me, the challenge has been making the time. um, It kind of comes in cycles, too, where I need to write, I hit writer's block, and then I'll just go and play some songs or make some prints and it kind of alleviates that block I'll have. Um, So sometimes it's almost like, okay, you've hit your limit of scholarly pursuits for the day or for the week or for the month, for the two months, for the semester. Um, So now you need to go and create otherwise. And uh, that helps me kind of um, establish over time a better balance between the two. But I would say balance is really difficult. Um, And in some respects, I've had to start treating it like the way that I'll put things on my scholarly calendar. I'll have to be like, you know what, I'm signing up for that workshop or you know what, I'm gonna go hang out at that spot and I'm just gonna like be in creative community. And that kind of reminds me of that part of my identity, of the reason why I even do that, whether people are looking or not. And yeah. Yo, it's a struggle. If I'm being like real honest, it's a struggle to maintain an artistic and like craft and practice. Um, while being a scholar. I'll say this, though. Um, like, I took a vow when I went into academia. Uh, when I graduated with my undergrad degree, I, I took a lot of time off in order to become an artist. I was doing dance. I was doing theater. I was writing. I was doing um, spoken word. I was doing a lot of stuff. 
And when I decided to go and pursue a master's degree at NYU, I'm, I truly made a vow to myself that this path would not steer me from the artistic path that I was already mm-hmm. on, that they would have to find a way to complement each other. Uh, and I do, like, I have to consciously return to that vow all the time, especially when I get caught up in, like, working on an article, working on a monograph, mm-hmm. like, doing all the academic work that I need, doing the teaching work. I have to remind myself, like, consciously remind myself. I have these little notes all over my office of, like, stay on your creative path. Mm-hmm. Um, so, like, for real, it's a struggle because the university will try to steer you into uh, a particular path. Um, So I've really had to struggle and fight. But um, I also find that it's a feedback loop for me, like insofar as I can continue to tell stories and create work and do creative writing, like just on that, not even thinking about like storytelling and performance, but just if I can stay on creative writing path, like it automatically feeds back into my academic writing so that I always feel like my academic writing voice is so much more nuanced by virtue of the fact that I can actually pursue creative writing and performance and I'm thinking of my writing in terms of like how would this be delivered publicly mm-hmm, yeah. yeah I think that I just I I love the feedback the idea of the feedback loop right so you know as academics we are pri- our, our craft is primarily writing and speaking right um, and when you think about the research that we do depending on your field oftentimes we don't think of ourselves as artists but I have found and I would never sort of classify myself as an artist but because I spend a lot of time with artists and I observe how they work and how they move I have learned different traits to incorporate in my writing practice that gives me the ability to stay consistent with with the writing and to stay relatively or at least on the path towards being more prolific. Mm-hmm. Um, do you ever find that when you are, I, think, I know you mentioned, Selena, when you have blocks, you're like, okay, I'm going to stop. I'm going to go mm-hmm. print. I'm going to go spend time in community with folks. What are the other ways that you bring, like what are some specific examples of like, this is how I show up as an artist in the classroom? How do you demonstrate that, way of being in the world. I think that's the way I want to describe it. I think artists have a particular way of being in the world that is so unique and different from non-artists, if I should say that. And I find it to be really appealing. How do you bring that to the classroom or to interactions that you have with folks that you're working with in community? Yeah, oh, you're like going, big <laughs> questions, going Meta. deep questions. This is tough. Meta. This is tough. <laughs> This is beyond like, what do you do? Can you talk about your work? <laughs> oh, we're going to get there. This is <laughs> we're going to get there. Yeah, like, we're going to get there. What work are you doing? Yes. Damn. Damn. Yes. Um, how do you show, how do we show up in the world as an artist and what you do? Do you got one for that? I feel like I got to marinate. <sighs> okay. I'm going to marinate on the next one. <laughs> okay. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Fair. That's fair. That's fair. Um, <laughs> but I, I mean... It took me, I feel like I just said this, but it took me a really long time to reconcile the different identities of scholar and artist. I was indoctrinated as scholar, thinking through tunnel vision, this is what a scholar is. A scholar produces writing that goes to journals, that you present at conferences, turns into books, and mostly those books are not the books you'll find, you know, I guess, um, everywhere. They're they're kind of sometimes inaccessible even. Um, And I had a very particular idea of how to show up as scholar for a really long time. And it's only recently um, through colleagues who often enough are, are not or don't view themselves as artists, even though I would argue that writing is is an art form, right? Um, but they don't view themselves as like creatives or artists. And they they would tell me all the time, like, don't you see how like the breaks you take to go like print or like carve and print or the breaks that you take to go like write a song or or play a show or whatever? Um, I wish I had that, right? Like, and so I, I kind of... Um, I've been really grateful to have good support um, through colleagues, but also through community and outside of academia that that have encouraged me to show up as my full self, at least most of the time, if not all the time. Uh, And so that's kind of, I don't know, that's influenced when I 
am in a classroom and I'm teaching, whether it's my class or I'm guest lecturing, I am kind of heavy on audio and visual. So I'll bring in sounds or when I'm analyzing films, I, I like to analyze scores or soundtracks as much as I like to analyze the cinematography. And I find that that's really effective for students to think that especially in English classes, especially in literary classes. Um, it's really important for students to feel like they can work outside of the box of a Word, Microsoft Word document, <laughs> um, which for me, quite honestly, is really stifling. Like, I never write in Microsoft Word. When it's in Word and it's Times New Roman 12-point font, it's getting ready to be sent out to be mm -hmm. reviewed. Because um, I just find I have a lot of baggage around deadlines and, and grades and all of that. And I don't want my students to, to feel that way, that they can't show up otherwise, um, produce projects otherwise. So sometimes it's asking them to create like mini podcasts mm -hmm. or I've had students write songs for end of semester projects. Mm -hmm. um, I've had them, I have assignments sometimes where I'm like, literally just draw your favorite scene from the novel we just read. Mm -hmm. And... I mean, and it's it's funny because it's also humbling because we all know like some people in the class are going to be like professionally trained or they have a background. They've been drawing every day of their life. Mm -hmm. And other folks are going to be like, look, I did stick figures. Right. <laughs> but it's kind of a cool for me. It's always been a cool experience to say this is also how you read books. This is also how you talk about books. And this is also how you take what you're learning in this classroom out into the world. Mm -hmm. um, and so that for me, that's how my, I guess, my artistic self will come into play as as teacher mm -hmm. in the classroom. Dang, that's really good. Mm -hmm. That's really good. Um, <laughs> I'm going to jump in. I've seen yeah. you, Matthew. So you and I did a panel together many years ago downtown at that art space across from um, UCENT. And so, uh, Je Jeff Chang was here. It was on hip hop. It was with Marcus. Yes. Oh, bless. Uh, Rest in power. Marcus White. Um and you did this thing where you just like, we were, it was like an academic conversation panel, but then you were like, yo, I can't, I can't sit down. You mind if I stand up? And you started to move <laughs> around and you were dancing in yeah. the, and you were speaking and dancing simultaneously. And the audience just went wild. They were like, yeah, like people <laughs> like just got into it because you took these ideas that are often presented in this very, like, I love the metaphor of the word doc. It's like the word doc or the presentation, the, yeah. the slide deck. And you have to speak into existence ideas. And you're like, no, I'm going to move into existence these ideas. And the audience had a an embodied, visceral experience of learning. And that, to me, was an example of demonstrating how an artist can take ideas and make it like you could feel the ideas. Yo, I love that. Yeah, I love, it you was just so took me back. Dope. That was still that I was like fifteen pounds lighter and like five pounds <laughs> or five years younger. I could I couldn't do that now. Um, no, but I, I think that actually speaks to how I was going to respond. Like, um, I really do try to operate in the world as an educator, as an artist, just as an individual, with the with the knowledge that art and performance are not just an object of study, that they're an epistemology. It's a way of knowing the world. Yes. That is certainly how I show up in the classroom. Like I I would also say like how I embody it is like constantly reminding myself and reminding my students that we need to take risks. Like to me, that's what an artist is. It's a risk taker in yeah. in whatever medium yeah. that that mm -hmm. you that you pursue, it's always taking risks because you're trying to push yourself to do something uh, that you haven't done before or push yourself to see something or make something that you haven't made before. Right. Um, so it's all about taking risks. And for me, like in the classroom specifically, that means uh, getting my students to feel mad uncomfortable <laughs> uh, in all kinds of ways. Like um, day one, like day one, when they show up in my class in August, like the first two days are dance. Mm -hmm. Now, this is not a dance class. This is a humanities class where we're like the majority of the time we're reading books. But I'm like, you got to put stuff in your body like everything lives through the body. So you got to get in touch with that, even in a humanities classroom, mm -hmm. uh, because art and performance are a way of knowing. I'm trying to put that uh, in their heads yeah. on, on day one. That's certainly one thing that I'm thinking of for sure. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So now let's talk about your scholarship and the important what I see is the important contribution that your work is going to make in helping um, 
the readers, those who engage the work, helping us understand some of the intersections between art, cultural production, society, how we engage with art or sort of creative works, um, and the stories that they tell or the stories that they um, sort of repeat that might not necessarily be stories that are most valuable Mm -hmm. as we move to understand certain communities more deeply. So, Matthew, Mm -hmm. let's talk about your book, uh, A Transcultural Pop History of the Day of the Dead, From Heritage to Hollywood and Back Again. I love that title. So tell us about the history and the popularization of uh, Dia de los Muertos and the role that large entertainment companies have played in really spreading the celebration. Yeah, Um I, I want to first acknowledge that the the whole reason that I even pursued this this research project was as a way to form an ancestral connection. It really like it came out of like a spiritual place well before it came from like an academic space for me. It was a way for me to get in in touch with the ancestors. It was a way for me to be in touch with culture uh, because to me, I couldn't pursue something that wasn't deeply rooted in that first and foremost, which is why I one of the reasons why I deviated from my like doctoral research and dissertation. I was like, that was a side of me that was like purely academic that didn't necessarily speak to what was going on in the interiority of me. Um, so that's that's where this project comes from. Um I got really interested also in Day of the Dead precisely because um, like just beginning my initial phase of research, I was finding that Chicanos my age and older uh, weren't coming to Dia de los Muertos from like an ancestral connection, that it was something that they found uh, during the Chicano movement of the 1970s. So they came to Day of the Dead much later. It wasn't something that was passed down from like grandmother, 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 et cetera. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was always something that was found usually through art spaces. Mm-hmm. So that was like the major intersection for me is thinking of the way that uh, Day of the Dead has uh, been passed down over generations primarily through artistic practice. Because everything that uh, is involved in Day of the Dead, the creating of altars, um, like that is an artistic practice. Mm-hmm. Like that is, it's not just a cultural tradition, it is an artistic practice. Mm-hmm. You ask anybody who makes an altar for their ancestors, like it is about placing things in a certain way so that it comes alive. And they think about it in the way that an artist would think about it, even if they might not identify themselves as artists. Um, but because it's been traveling through the arts, because Day of the Dead has been traveling through the arts, it's also started to travel through the commodification mm-hmm. of arts institutions for sure. So that's certainly something that I've tagged intellectually in in terms of like how I'm trying to pay attention to it, not just the way Day of the Dead is circulating through the arts, but the way that it's circulating through like now Disney or major media companies uh, because Latinos are f***ing hot right now. You know what I mean? Like (laughs) there's a way of capitalizing on that. People want to capitalize on that. So, uh, I mean, I'm also very attuned to that, but um, there's a dialectic to it too, because you know, insofar as like Disney making cocoa and, and making Day of the Dead products and Day of the Dead Barbie dolls and that kind of stuff, it's also given a younger generation of Mexicans and Mexican Americans the idea that like, oh, this cultural tradition, if it's on the big screen, then that means something to me. Mm. Like people, younger generations are coming to Day of the Dead because it's commodified, right. which is really right, interesting. Right, right. So I, I can't knock it too much, but I but I am trying to be critical of it. Yeah. It's the idea that representation matters. Mm-hmm. And you use the word commodification, right? So the idea that uh, of cultural practices being turned into products mm-hmm. for sale, right? And so, Selena, yeah. talking about <laughs> representation, um, your book project, which is titled Desert Distortion, uh, is under contract with Texas Tech uh, University Press. Mm-hmm. So kudos, congratulations. Talk to us about the idea of distortion that you are um, introducing in the book and, and how can it really help us understand this connection that we have to land, to place, um, and to community through art, and especially the ways in which certain lands, certain landscapes are represented in art and, and how, it, how problematic those representations have been. Yeah. Wow. Another mega question. Um, all right. Walk with me on this path. Yay! <laughs> We're on it. <clears throat> okay. So distortion, the idea of distortion in the book kind of comes from, doesn't kind of come from, it definitely comes from my 
love of 60s and 70s psychedelic music, primarily late late 60s. Um, In terms of the way that uh, famously Bob Dylan goes electric or uh, you start to see electricity in, in the counterculture in different ways. Country Joe and the Fish has electric music for the mind and body. Uh, Jimi Hendrix has electric Ladyland studios. So this electricity, I think there's a Captain Beefheart song, electricity. So you start to see this electrified countercultural movement, which has its own problems, but also they are experimenting in many, many ways. They are experimenting with sights and sounds. And for me, that was that's always been something that I've been interested in since I was a young kid throwing peace signs and wearing tie-dye. And I, I honestly, I don't know. I'm an alien as far as my family's concerned. I don't know where I picked all of that up. But I've, I've had an affinity for it for a really long time. And in terms of thinking through distortion as something that I view as productive, it's not necessarily inherently, for me, it's not necessarily inherently good or bad. It's just experimentation. In that context, it's very playful. And it opened doors for the kinds of music and art that we enjoy today. So again, sights and sounds, I'm talking also the poster artists that came out of out of that era. So like Wes Wilson or Victor Moscoso, uh, how they play with colors that vibrate, um, text that bends and is warped and kind of forces mm-hmm. you, if you're interested, to stop and stare and take it in. Mm-hmm. And if you're not, then it's not for you. And kind of taking that idea and putting it with my own scholarship, which was already focusing um, on a <laughs> focusing on getting the chip off my shoulder about deserts being portrayed as wastelands, mm-hmm. as as barren. No one lives there, or the people who are native to these places are somehow always long gone or relegated to some past mm-hmm. or mythologized and and don't have presences or futures. And mm-hmm. I really coming from El Paso, coming from a border town. I just, I kept getting really tired on a personal level of seeing that in mm-hmm. films, seeing that in kind of mainstream cultures. And I felt like, oh, I'm going to try and take this on. <laughs> this mm-hmm. is a massive project. And I think, I'll, I will say, I think in the time that's taken me to write both the dissertation and the book, I think we're now at a turning point, both in the field and outside of the field, where people are understanding that deserts are complex spaces that are not barren wastelands. And for me, it became, okay, so if they're not these things, then what are they? Mm -hmm. And that's where the productivity of distortion comes through. So Mm -hmm. if you, for me, I thought about the book uh, as a concept album of sorts, right? It's a concept album. Like each each chapter is a preposition for the Mm -hmm. title. And that preposition dictates the kinds of distortion we're looking at Mm -hmm. so through or above or with or without and this kind of guides the conversation of each chapter or track Mm -hmm. and I don't know if you want an example of that but I do look at the film Sicario which again has its problems right Um, but also the cinematography in that film is often aerial it's often mediated through satellite or drone footage, Mm -hmm. nighttime vision, there's this kind of vertical aspect to both the cinematography as well as the power structures that Mm -hmm. exist within that film. So the analysis is called from the top down. It's, you know, you're looking at the feds, you're looking at the cartels, you're looking at local police, and then you have some portrayals of some migrants in the films. And usually when the first time that they're really portrayed, they're sitting down. Mm -hmm. So it's these kinds of analyses that kind of drive the book. Um, Yeah, in terms of yeah, in terms of the prepositions and the kinds of distortions. But hopefully the idea is you get an array and a spectrum of desert places mm-hmm. and not just this one or the other. Yeah. Um, you know, and so in that I say deserts are very abundant and complex places. Right. And so they do have trauma and they do have violence and they are subjected to centuries of colonialism. Yeah. Uh, but they are also places where communities thrive and right. that are bio, biologically diverse and really important as we enter and or have entered the Anthropocene. Yeah. Mm. Uh, so that's kind of what feels feels the book and the scholarship and myself moving forward. Yeah. Yo. <laughs> <laughs> like I want to buy that book. <laughs> that's amazing. It's coming. It's coming. It's coming. <laughs> it's coming. So as you were talking, I was thinking about color. 
and the way and we've had a lot of conversations about sort of how desert landscapes are presented um, or are um, kind of envisioned along a certain color spectrum. Mm-hmm. Um, and of course, the connection to music, it also had me thinking about uh, one of my favorite bands, Rage Against the Machines, People of the Sun, and the ways in which deserts reflect and are situated on landscapes that are the spaces inhabited by people of color, mm-hmm. primarily. Mm-hmm. Um, in terms of the sort of original peoples of the space and the colonized peoples of the space. Talk a little bit about the way in which color has sort of emerged and is kind of contested in the environmental humanities, like blue equals the waters and brown (laughs) equals the deserts and how we are really thinking in a more nuanced and critical deep way about the coloring of land and some of how that then gets kind of morphed into the sort of racialization of the study of space in this way. Yeah, I think in terms of the field of environmental humanities, uh, starting, I would say, late 90s, early 2000s, you start really seeing a turn shift towards green discourse, green as sustainable, but also as pastoral, these kind of very Eurocentric visions of what um, what lush and lively gardens we we have, right? That are that are just green and pastoral, and those landscapes don't translate to everywhere in the world, but they are, in terms of anglophone literature and culture, they're pretty dominant. And so there was this easy, early on, there was this easy association between life and sustainability. And then that kind of got commodified, co-opted, and companies were going green left and right, you know, like detergents. I don't know why that sticks out so strongly. Greening but, becomes a verb. But greening is a verb, mm, yeah. and there's a really strong push towards uh, towards green means good. Green means good. And... Blue, because you asked about it specifically, in the environmental humanities, again, I would say the last five, ten years, really five, it's really taken off. But blue humanities has really taken off as kind of a a backlash or a response to green. And that has its own issues as well, because then it's what kind of what what kind of people have access to to spaces that are considered, I guess, blue, and what kind of expertise, scholarship, or otherwise are being centered. So I I think with blue humanities, there is a similar sort of trap to become, you're interested in these spaces, whether it's oceans or even, you know, rivers, Uh, you're sometimes prone to exoticizing the space. And I know that ocean studies and hydro, I think there's something called hydro studies, hydro humanities, that have kind of, you know, that have tried to sidestep the blue and the color conversation itself. Um, Because for the green and blue, it's a way to also not really talk about race and racialization. Mm -hmm. And when it comes to desert studies, the obvious color is brown. Um, which when you contrast it with something like blue or green, mm-hmm. um, maybe doesn't seem that lively initially. Yeah. But of course, talking from a racialized standpoint is very lively, right? Yeah. And it's also, it's something that I guess if you're if you're from a desert place, uh, you're more attuned to seeing different shades of brown, yes. I would say too. And I, I mean, in land and in people and that kind of complex Nature and complex conversation is always going on, in my head at least, and and hopefully comes through in the scholarship as well, because the book itself is dealing with uh, the area known as Desert Southwest. It's regional, and so I'm trying to take on the layers of histories and I hope also futures that are taking place in this region, yeah. and so it's it's contextualized within a borderlands. Right. And hopefully some of the work in the book is talking about how borders are not just always like between countries or states. Like there are other kinds of borders, identity borders, things Mm -hmm. like that. So, yeah. 
Dang. I want to get this book. <laughs> I don't know. I want to get this book. Well, what's well, what's so for for me, what's fascinating and and the connection that I see between um your two projects, right? Thinking about um cultural production as it is represented uh, amongst um, Latinx, Chicanx, Chicano communities in the U.S., um, and also thinking about cultural production as it attempts to represent land, place, landscapes, and peoples, uh, particularly with a connection to indigenous conceptualizations of land, place, and the people's connection to space, right? So, Matthew, talk a little bit about the complexities around cultural representation, right? Like, what is being represented by whom, for what purpose, who benefits, who profits, all of those pieces, um, and how communities of color often exist in the same or adjacent geographic areas in the U.S., and our respective cultures become popular and global in scale, right? Mm -hmm. So it's this juxtaposition of representation of historically marginalized communities in the U.S., but yet these are also, you know, the sort of new language of the global majority is emerging Mm -hmm. to think about the way in which people of color do represent a global majority demographically and our cultures are being commodified and popularized and, and made global. Right. Yo, where's my entry point on that one? Where is my entry point? Um, Black Panther. Oh God. I would love to. Wakanda forever. Yeah, Wakanda forever. Your entry point to that one. You can't see us, but you know, Wakanda forever. Um, Yo, okay, so here's a couple things that I'm thinking of immediately as you talk about that, is that, uh, you know, one of the things that attracts me to Day of the Dead so so much is how deeply intercultural it already is. Because, of course, it's, um, I mean, most people know Dia de Muertos is like a syncretic holiday. It's a mixture of indigenous uh, ritual ceremonies for the dead that existed in Mesoamerica, Central America, what uh, modern-day Central America, Mexico, mixed with uh, European Catholicism, All Saints, All Souls, right? So you have this mixture, this really beautiful mixture, but it's like mixed in all kinds of ways, right? Because as Spain came over and colonized Spain was a complex racially, you know what I mean? In terms of like North Africans being part of that. So like when we think of like Day of the Dead as a syncretic holiday, this mixture and blend, like part of that blend is also African culture, which most people don't necessarily think of when they think of Day of the Dead. They think of it as a Mexican thing, as a Latino thing, Chicano thing, et cetera, et cetera. But uh, we would be foolish to forget that it's also got these other kind of, I don't know what the word would be, global spices maybe mm. to to the mix. Um so in that regard, like, I, I feel really like I'm thinking of this instance where my homegirl hit me up. Uh, she African-American. She wanted to put the sugar skull on. And she was like, is this cultural appropriation? And I'm like, I don't know, because, you know, part of this is African. Mm-hmm. Like, what in what way are you in touch with your ancestors? And how can that be fulfilling for you and participating in this? Um, so that's one thing that I'm thinking of. I'm also thinking of the way that Day of the Dead has been co-opted in various ways, not just recently, because of course, part of the conversation around Day of the Dead right now is that it's become commercialized and commodified by virtue of uh, late global capitalism like right now. On the other hand, uh, I would say that Day of the Dead has been appropriated in a lot of ways. So like a lot of the stuff I'm concentrating on right now is the way that Day of the Dead was appropriated by Mexicans in order to become a quote-unquote Mexican holiday. Uh, So at a certain point after the Mexican Revolution in the 1920s of Mexico, as Mexico was trying to rebuild like a shattered country that had just gone through 10 years of like civil strife, war, family against family, like really a broken down society, uh, had to rebuild that society and rebuild. And part of that project was creating a national culture. How do we unify people? Let's unify them around a sense of a national culture. And so Day of the Dead becomes appropriated as this national symbol to unify people who had just like years prior 
been at war with each other. Um, So like the honoring of death as a way to kind of seal a society in a pact Mm -hmm. that we are a unified nation, uh, even though technically speaking, in the territory, the vast territory of Mexico, not all peoples had been celebrating Day of the Dead. Like, it is kind of a regional holiday limited to central and southern Mexico. So at a certain point, it got appropriated. So now when I think of, like, uh, people saying, oh, you're appropriating Mexican identity by, you know, appropriating Day of the Dead, I'm always like, well, you know, Mexico at a certain point appropriated Mm -hmm. Day of the Dead for its own ends, too. Uh, So it's it's hyper-complicated. This is some of the things I'm thinking of. As you I love that, that. I love this. And as you're talking, I'm thinking like there's levels to the cultural appropriation mm-hmm. game. And it's really important. I think some of the popular conversation and the sort of social media calling in, calling out of actions that are perceived as acts of cultural appropriation, they're often they don't take into account the nuance and the sort of layers of history that are embedded in how a particular practice, as it is engaged in the 21st century U.S. context, right? Like there's not a singular historical understanding of all of these practices. And so I love the language that you use to describe Day of the Dead as a syncretic, Mm. is that what you called it? A syncretic holiday. It's a holiday that actually recognizes diaspora. It recognizes Mm. the contribution of multiple diasporas, multiple kind of groups of people that have come together under a particular set of colonial instances, colonial experiences, to form a a holiday, a set of celebrations that recognizes the umbrella of that existence. 100. Right? And so... Can I quote you on that? You can have that. Can I have that? Can we have that one? (laughs) But yeah, like I think that that's... It's so important for people to understand that it's not... There's not a singular origin point for every single set of cultural practices and experiences. Sure, because cultural practice implies an ongoing practice, which means like it's subject to change. Anytime that you inherit a cultural practice, you can presume that that practice has been changed many Mm -hmm. times over Mm -hmm. many generations. So the version that you inherit has already been changed, transmogrified, messed with, with all you know what I mean like yeah. it's I, I always I always try to remember that as a cultural scholar like you have to remember that right right and that not every cultural practice is engaged as fluidly in the ways that we're talking about mm-hmm. right so having that nuanced ability to decipher and and having that sort of literacy, that media literacy to understand that not all cultural practices are created in the same way Mm. and not every act of participation in cultural practice is appropriative. Mm. And in some instances, they are, right? (laughs) Yeah, and in some instances, (laughs) they are. (laughs) Right? It's it's like, it's so complicated, I think. Yeah, agreed. Mm -hmm. Agreed 100%. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So... Let's go back to the discussion about artists, um, not just in terms of your own practice, but you know the contribution of art and artists to the world that we're living in now. I think that oftentimes people describe the role of artists as those who hold up a mirror to society, right? Presenting us with these transparent renderings of who we are, but also these possibilities of who we might become, right? Um, And so you're both part of creative communities. Who are some of the artists that you are checking for right now? And how is their work helping you to process, to navigate, to make sense of our current social and political moment? Uh, Rafa Esparza, for me, um, coming out of, he's from Los Angeles, and uh, his work, and particularly his work, making adobe bricks and installing uh, the bricks, either the bricks or sometimes it's these huge panels of adobe in gallery spaces, for me is, I'm just always watching for what he's going to do. I mean, he's a queer brown artist 
that is proud of where he comes from, proud of his family, of his friends. He finds ways to bring his community in. So I think when he had his, uh, when he was at the Whitney, showing at the Whitney, he invited like four or five of his artist friends to also display their art in the space his art was displayed. Um, Not to mention, we were talking about (laughs) brown and the browning of white gallery spaces and of white art, art spaces. And in addition to that, he's talked about adobe as a living breathing kind of material, right? There's like, there's bugs in it, there's dung in it, there's hay. Uh, I know that he incorporates into, I guess I should start from the beginning. I know that he learned to make these bricks from his dad who did that work in, in Mexico, right? And he has taken this, that opportunity to learn from his father and to kind of bond with his father to then take to his community in an art capacity and he will often create bricks with folks who are just interested or with friends he already has in the area and they'll make those bricks together and then those bricks travel right they they travel and so I really I love kind of everything he does and he has a lot of other work that doesn't deal with adobe but sometimes he'll he'll um, paint portraits of family or friends on the adobe slabs and for me, that's just, it's so powerful. I, I love anything he does. I, I will say also locally, Chela is an artist oh. who I can't recommend enough. Um, her work is just uh, phenomenal, playing with identities, um, whether they're masculine, feminine, uh, so I guess sexuality-based and, and typical representations of those. And... Um, yeah, and, and just powerful. And I've had the fortune to talk with Chella about some of these works, and it just always blows me away hearing her experience, um, her experience of, of migrating and, and, yeah, what that means to be here and be in this community here. And so I'm always looking out for work that Chella does. Um, I think Borderless Creative, that's an Instagram handle. I don't know if we're <laughs> adding, but Borderless Creative. <laughs> we will uh, put it in the show notes. <laughs> yeah. uh, Gloria is also somebody who is interested in in kind of documenting the undocumented experience, right? And um, so her work, I mean, most recently I saw like lithography, so printmaking, kind of printmaking, uh, lithography kind of, I don't remember how many she made of these, but they were her different IDs and they're in an installation kind of just like hanging and and kind of thinking about, again, identity and when it's (laughs) verified or official. And um, yeah, and her work just, uh, her and Jose Villalobos, I feel like they're two people that always... I know I'm talking here as an artist, but part of the hang up about like, oh, I'm not an artist is because you see all this really fascinating work mm-hmm. where people are kind of uninhibited by the kinds of materials they want to use, the, yeah. the size of the installations they want to take on. And so I would say Gloria and Jose Villalobos, for me, like the way that they take on kind of what we might think of as unconventional materials and make those into art Um is really fascinating for me. And Gloria's work was up at Palabras. Is it was right? at the Raiz Gallery at Palabras right. uh, Bilingual Bookstore for, it was showcased there. And I can't remember if it's in the Phoenix Art Museum mm-hmm. now. I feel like it's the Phoenix Art Museum now. Okay. But yeah, she shows locally mm-hmm. <clears throat> all the time. And, and um, yeah, it's just fascinating stuff. And I think Jose Villalobos right now has several pieces and different shows, but he also, as a queer artist, takes on ideas of machismo. Mm -hmm. And so he will, uh, he does these performance pieces that are intense. I mean, they are very, we're talking about like the body, very embodied. Mm. Um, He has one, I think it's called The Weight of the River. And he's walking across the Rio Grande, the dry part of the Rio Grande. um, And he's walking across and he's pulling hay bales and he's in heels and he's got um, a tank on his head that he keeps filling periodically with water to kind of simulate the crossing that his mom made. And so things like this that that, um, create a new... I don't know, a new way to express or talk back to people that that we come from, mm-hmm. <laughs> the people that we come from, the stories that we we hold and carry, and ways to put that in artistic expressions that are powerful and are not 
they don't stay in, I guess, the, the traumatic or the damage, but they mm. do reckon with it, mm. right? right? They do bring it to the fore. Um, because I think a lot of times in, in cases of my, migration, and especially across the U.S.-Mexico border, we, we hear about floods of migrants or we hear about mm. <laughs> surges, mm. and that totally de-individualizes yeah. these people and their individual stories. Yeah. And so I think that's really, for me, that's super important work that, that they're doing to kind of, to show you that even just one person crossing like that yeah. is intense, right? Yeah. And so, yeah. There's a way that those experiences lose their humanity when they turn into sound bites for mm-hmm. media distribution. Yeah. And, and so artists give us an opportunity to really have an embodied experience of, I love how you put it, the weight, Mm -hmm. the weight of that experience, um, the weight of the ancestral stories that are passed down through families and, and allowing folks who are not of those traditions and not of those cultures to develop a deep awareness and understanding and experience of what that could potentially have, have that experience, what it was like, right? So one would be, uh, they're both uh, in theater. So Larissa Fasthorse, mm-hmm. uh, playwright Larissa Fasthorse. Um, she's doing all kinds of things. So like right now, she's got her play. Uh, she's an indigenous uh, playwright. Uh, her play is on Broadway. It's called The Thanksgiving Play. Uh, and the the immediate media circus around her was that like, oh my gosh, it's an indigenous woman. Uh, it's the first time an indigenous woman is going to be on Broadway. Her play will be on Broadway. And she made a point to be like, that we know of. Mm -hmm. Indigenous Mm -hmm. woman that we know of. Right. right? Which I was just like, Mm -hmm. oh, what a great, like, as opposed Mm -hmm. to taking on, like, this mantle for herself, she, like, pushed the critical question out into uh, theater culture more generally. I was like, oh, I really appreciate that maneuver. But the play is amazing. Uh, It's a play about uh, a group of four white theater artists uh, who are trying to put on a Thanksgiving pageant play for a school. Um, And so, like, it's got this biting satire and comedy, Mm -hmm. but it's like cringy comedy. And there's a part of me like that loves theater that's cringy comedy. <laughs> I love thinking, but I also laugh. I also love laughing and then being like, wait, why did I just laugh at that? Mm-hmm. You know, like it requires you to dig so much deeper. Uh, comedy does sometimes. And so I love that Larissa is able to do that. And then the other um, – uh, she does a, a variety of work. I mean, I don't know if any of you saw the uh, Native Nations play that she did here at ASU a couple years mm-hmm. ago. Uh, so she came here. This was part of the Gamage Theater. She came here to do a residency. I want to say they were here for almost three years working with wow. indigenous communities to create a show wow. that got staged here. And so she does like community work as well. She's not just a Broadway playwright. Like she does community work. And that play, uh, she goes to, uh, she's done it here. She's done it in Southern California. She's doing it right now. Um, up at the uh, at one of the reservations in South Dakota, mm-hmm. so creating community theater with people. So Larissa Fasthorse, I just love, 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 and support her work. And then the other would be Christina Wong, who's mm-hmm. also uh, like a comedian, playwright, performance artist as well. Um, the most recent work that she did, which just uh, got nominated, uh, was finalist for a Pulitzer, uh, was called Sweatshop Overlord, which was about her creating this uh, mutual aid network at the top of COVID of mm-hmm. making masks mm-hmm. for people and then sending them to vulnerable communities. And she made a play about this, mm-hmm. so about her activism in this particular arena. And it's just, uh, it's again, like, makes you laugh, but it makes you angry at, like, why the U.S. government failed us during this crisis, but you're mm-hmm. laughing the entire time, mm-hmm. you know what I mean? Like that. That mm. pointing us to like these critical junctures where we have to think deeply while laughing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. We laugh to keep from crying often, <laughs> <laughs> right? That's the beauty of comedy, mm. right? So, um, final question: um, Thinking about, um, yeah, it was interesting. Folks can't see this, but as you both were talking about and offering examples, uh, both of contemporary artists, but also talking about your work. I could see your faces really light up. Um, And so talk a little bit about how you think folks, how and why it's important for folks to 
be exposed to a diversity of art throughout their life, especially young people, right? I, I think that there's we're, we're living in a moment where certain creative expressions are being legislated as harmful, um, as violent, as potentially disruptive to young people. Um, how, why do you think it's important for young people and people across the generational spectrum to be exposed to a diversity of art. Why is that important? Oh, it's what that's what every bit of my hope that I have <laughs> hinges on. Um, in the case of, let's say, the scholarship that I spoke about earlier, if you're talking to, and I have talked to just like general audiences, not necessarily academic audiences, traditional artists that are known or associated with desert spaces. Mm -hmm. If you're talking literature, Edward Abbey's name comes up a lot. Um, he wrote Monkey Wrench Gang and Desert Solitaire and is, you know, national parks, like pro-national park because he was a ranger and he was out in Moab. Mm -hmm. He's really well known. He also was racist. <laughs> um, but he's, his name comes up in literary talks. Uh, John Ford, famous for <laughs> westerns and that kind of horizontal landscape, desert landscape, desert scape that has these figures riding into the sunset. Mm -hmm. That's often what comes up when you're talking about westerns or deserts of the west. Uh, and in terms of painting often, uh, I will, George O'Keefe comes up. Mm -hmm. A lot in that New Mexico aesthetic. I mean, essentially, her watercolors kind of define that New Mexico aesthetic for a lot of folks. And none of those people, even though they are some of the biggest, most widely recognizable names in portraying desert places, are from desert places. Mm. And I feel like the point here is not that you have to be from a place to represent the place in art. Mm. That's not the point. The point is really to investigate why the mm -hmm. people's arts, whether it's film, whether it's literature, or whether it's paintings, why those arts are, or those artists are not as prominent or well-known or kept in books and right. things like that. And so that, for me, kind of is why, I guess, it's so important that we take it upon ourselves as scholars and as artists mm -hmm. to to find those those examples of like oh this was going on before this was going on at the same time this mm -hmm. is those those simultaneities that sometimes things like canons don't allow mm -hmm. yeah. um i think that's really that's really important and and it's kind of i think the artist's job to to take up those traditions i mean like matthew was talking about right take up those traditions there's histories of traditions of whether it's dance, whether it's painting, whether it's pottery, there's histories whole. <laughs> Since time immemorial for indigenous communities, there are these, these taking on of traditions, but also this molding it towards the futures that they, yes. that they want and hope for. Mm. And I think when I think about why it took me so long to take on this artist identity, it's because I'm like, well, I don't do paintings. I don't do, I guess, what I was taught was art in the classroom. Mm -hmm. And now I, I think some of what you're alluding to, right, with these drag bands, mm -hmm. drag is art. That's right. <laughs> right? That's like, right. there are all these different kinds of art um, that, that exist that if we allow ourselves to be more open to what art really truly is, and we would see it in everyday life, which I think most artists do, to go back to how you were talking to us about how you show up in the world, I think artists are kind of readily absorbing the art in every exchange, in every drive to work, and every, just everything is art all the time. And I think, right, like everything's art all the time. But I think that exposure to that enables people to say, oh, this is okay. Yes. Oh, this is okay. Oh, I can explore this. And I think part of what's difficult now is you see a lot of polished artists like on Instagram you have mm. filters you have you have these things that make things look very polished and don't always celebrate the journey 
of experimentation, of failure, of like how many bad poems did I need to write to write one good one? Like seriously, a like decades. Yeah, like, right, like right, seriously, right. decades. How many? Or how bad? many? Di- how many bad digital renderings did I have to sort through <laughs> to get to that good one to like put up on the blockchain? Yeah. So. How many times do right. I have to mess up on this bar chord before I get the whole all yeah. six strings to make you know resonance? Like right. that. I think shining light on that is so important and and it's not immediate things like art are not super immediate although when you do see you know a performance like you were talking about that like that hits you immediately because there was so much craft and Mm -hmm. intention behind it right but but it's a it it's a it's a slog that i think really pays off because it's fulfilling because like you mm. said lights up your face you start thinking about the process and it changes to go to art is transformative like it does change how you bring yourself through spaces in the world yes i was yeah. thinking yeah i was thinking something similar uh, i love that you brought it back to art as transformative cuz to me that's why i was thinking like why is the art why is the arts important for for young people especially because I think you, you you said like young people especially for me that that's it and I hate to get like too mystical about it but like for real it's like a reality for go me. there <laughs> yeah, <take us> there. <laughs> that that regardless of medium art gives a young person the ability to express something that is interior and allow it to get out into the world which then becomes an to hit the feedback loop again, it does it does become that once it's out of the body in whatever fashion, it then gives that person the ability to use it as a reflection point to then create identity. So mm-hmm. for me, uh, mm-hmm. pursuing the arts, like supporting the arts is, is all about identity formation, whether or not young kids become professional artists is neither here nor there. Mm-hmm. Engaging in the arts allows for identity formation. And that is so vital. That is so vital for everybody, because regardless of the medium, like it's about expression for you to get it out so that you can reflect so that it becomes a part of who you are and can become. So I know that that might be like a little mystical or woo woo about it, but like that mm-hmm. that is how I see it. Oh, absolutely. And it also and, and this is, you know, this is why artists are so pivotal to community work, mm-hmm. whether it's economic development, political mobilization, or just how community members build right relationships with each other, Mm -hmm. right? That it's often the creative class that presents possibilities for people who are living in diverse communities to begin to get to know each other, Mm -hmm. to begin to engage, to begin to build the infrastructure of a community that reflects this desire to be inclusive, to be communal, to want to know your neighbors, right? It's usually through art that we see those opportunities made manifest, right? And so I think that art plays a pivotal role in building the necessary relationships it takes for us to be a 21st century inclusive society. And one of the biggest fears, and I think why we're kind of experiencing this legislative authoritarianism around certain creative practices, the banning of books, drag, etc., is there's a deep fear. There's a deep fear that people have that the ability to represent our life experience from the vantage point of those who have been historically marginalized or colonized will expose the reality that the effects of colonization are still real and ever-present in the 21st century. There's a deep fear of losing power, losing one's position in the world, or having to actually face that you are part of a legacy of oppression. Mm -hmm. That is traumatic for people to have to not only understand intellectually, but feel in the body that your ancestors were part and parcel of the creation of this society that has created the conditions of inequality and injustice to live on. That's a very traumatic thing, I think, for people to have to sit with. Mm. And so creating the possibilities for people to move through that trauma in the ways that we as people of color are constantly moving through spaces and experiences of trauma 
every single day that is real. And so art gives us the opportunity to explore that those experiences in a way that is meaningful and that I think can potentially be seen as just. Mm. Yeah. Word. I love Period. that. <laughs> I love that. Yeah, yeah. So Thank you. Thank, Thank you, you both for Thank just you. sharing yeah. your you. <laughs> sharing your work, for showing up in the world the ways that you do and reminding us of the power of art to, uh, to transform our lives. So thank you. I'd like to take a brief moment to thank this episode's participants, Dr. Matthew Sandoval and Dr. Selena Osuna, as well as our sponsor, Arizona PBS, for making this podcast possible. Throughout this episode, we have touched on topics that seem to traverse academic disciplines and different fields of thought, like philosophy, culture, education, and of course, art and music. When we think of art as transformative, it is nearly impossible to think within a single lens because art often acts as a manifestation of the multifaceted nature of our society, which can transcend disciplines. So in order to attempt to grasp the vast nature of transformative art, it is beneficial and even crucial to think through an interdisciplinary lens. For those of you who joined us for our first episode, I provided a metaphor using colors to help explain what interdisciplinary is. But to put it simply, interdisciplinary means relating to more than one branch of knowledge. It's the way that we look at a social problem, a set of social relations and or phenomenon using multiple disciplinary perspectives. By thinking this way, you create new possibilities for change, problem solving, and ways to address contemporary social issues from multiple perspectives. This episode illustrated how art goes beyond just drawings, paintings, and sculptures. Art is embodied in the human canvas through performance, which we learned is not just a form of entertainment or an object of study, rather an epistemology. To elaborate on this, I'll draw from Taylor Diana's book, From the Archive and the Repertoire, Performing Cultural Memory in the Americas. In this book, Diana highlights the intersections of performance and Latin American studies, where a particular investment in performance studies derives less from what it is than what it allows us to do. By taking performance seriously as a system of learning, storing, and transmitting knowledge, performance studies allows us to expand what we understand by knowledge. By looking through a Latin American studies lens, we are able to explore histories of conquest, colonialism, slavery, indigenous rights, imperialism, migration, and globalization through the Americas. Combined with an interdisciplinary frame, we are able to reshape how social memory and cultural identities in the Americas are traditionally being studied. By peering through the lens of performed embodied behavior, Diana hopes to deepen an understanding of colonialism and bring light to the stories, memories, and struggles of those who have remained historically invisible. In the first chapter of Diana's book, she highlights how memory can draw the intersections of performance art and history. Here, she argues that performance functions on an epistemy, or a system of understanding, that is located in the body, not only in written word and formalized archives. Her elaboration of the colonial archive, or its scenario, shows that the archive should not only contain the written word, but also embodied action in the form of performance. In this way, art, dance, and other forms of performance can highlight the diverse cultures, memories, and identities that they embody. Many indigenous groups across the U.S. manifest the embodied performance in many ways. For example, the hoop dance symbolizes the never-ending cycle of life while also symbolizing certain animals and plants, while the grass dance is a performance that honors departed ancestors. From Hawaii, hula is another form of embodied performance. Viewed by many as a form of entertainment, hula is rich with the embodiment of nature, culture, and memory. The dancer roots themselves in time and place and reaches back through their lineage to perform with body movements, adornment, and audio cues that embody water cycles, volcanic cycles, energy transfer, reproduction, and other cultural formations. And for those chosen to lead these traditional ceremonies, it is vital to understand the importance of lineage, which is described as a library of ceremonial resources and the aha, or the connection that reaches back generations. This definition of lineage perfectly represents Diana's ideas of the archive that transcends written word and is instead embodied by the human body through performance. I would like to conclude this section with a few quotes that capture the transformative power of art and performance and hopefully inspire a trail of insightful thought for our listeners. Diana writes that the telling is as important as the writing, the doing as central as the recording, the memory passed down through bodies and mnemonic practices. Performance cannot be saved, recorded, documented, or otherwise participate in the circulation of representations of representation. Performance is being, 
let the ontology of subjectivity proposed here become itself through disappearance. The goal of this episode was to draw attention to how art transforms the ways we think, how we move, and the overall lens through which we perceive the world around us. We learn that artists help us navigate emotions, provide us with a sense of community, and how art exists inside of every one of us in diverse and meaningful ways. Oftentimes, being an artist is about expression, identity, breaking the margins, and existing in a way that pushes the boundaries of pre-existing thought. In this way, art's canvas can be seemingly endless in its abilities to embody, inspire, and reproduce the multifaceted nature of human complexity. By speaking with our guests, we learn that existing at the intersections of being an artist and a scholar can be difficult. The structures of academia can often restrict and impede the creative and expressive processes that artists want to explore. So our guests found that finding space to create a balance between that structure and creativity can provide avenues for creative thought, which can be drawn from areas that one may not normally associate with art, like speaking and writing. Perfect examples of these manifestations are expressed in Dr. Sandoval's book, A Transcultural Pop History of the Dead from Heritage to Hollywood and Back Again, where he connects the historical cultures surrounding Dia de los Muertos with contemporary celebrations of the cross-cultural holiday. In Dr. Osuna's book, Desert Distortions, she electrifies her readers with an analysis of aesthetics of desert places in literature, art and film, and their impact on cultural imagination and geopolitical relationships to the land. From these two examples, we can see just how crucial art is in the ongoing interpretations of our cultures and histories, along with the reimagining of our futures. Art holds the capacity to portray embodied experiences through storytelling, writing, painting, performance, and many other forms of expression. There are so many different avenues of art that exist when we just open ourselves up to what art truly is. By pursuing, supporting, and engaging in the many facets of art that are important to you, art becomes a vital tool for reflection, culture, and self-discovery. Thanks for listening to OK, School Me. This podcast was produced in the Ed Plus Studios in Tempe, Arizona. It is executive produced by Kyra Trent, with additional production and editorial support from Dr. Mako Fitzward, Dr. Selena Osuna, Jamal Brooks-Hawkins, Amber Green, Hannah Grabowski, and Kyle McKinney. For more information about this podcast, please refer to the show notes and follow us on Twitter and YouTube at ASUSTL.